Alcoholics Anonymous has helped millions of people on the road to sobriety. It's also the inspiration behind an infamous cult that took the tenets of recovery in a different, darker direction. We're talking about Synanon, a cult that started by helping people struggling with addiction and ended with a violent rattlesnake attack. Today, we're going to get into Synanon's beginnings and its founder, Charles Chuck Diedrich. This is a cult that's been called one of the most dangerous and violent America has ever seen. Hi everyone and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parkcast. I'm Saruti Bala. And I'm Hannah Maguire. Every week, we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers, and secret societies. We'll look at some of the biggest secretive societies and cults in history. And how they've managed to run in plain sight and infiltrate your everyday life. And yes, today we're going to tell you about Synanon, the drug rehabilitation program, led by Chuck Diedrich, who, in 1958, took the framework of Alcoholics Anonymous and turned it on its head. We'll look at how this group, one that was hailed for its work treating addiction and for turning a very good profit of millions of dollars, turned into a violent cult. One that used a technique called attack therapy and also encouraged women to get abortions. So let's get into Synanon. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right we have to get into Charles Chuck Dietrich's early life. Charles Edwin Dietrich, also known as Chuck, was born in 1913 in Toledo, Ohio. His father was an alcoholic who died in a car accident when Chuck was just four years old. He was raised by his mother, who was a devout Roman Catholic and also a classical concert singer. Chuck had a brother who died of the flu when he was just eight years old. Because of Chuck's religious upbringing, he believed, like baby Hannah Maguire, that he would go to hell if he didn't go to church every Sunday. His mother did remarry, but he hated his stepfather. When Chuck was 14, he read a copy of the H.G. Wells book, The Outline of History. And according to LA Magazine, he became, quote, a militant atheist almost overnight. The Outline of History... It was published in 1919, so it's like it's old, olden times. It's like a brief history of the universe, but only about 
humans. I see. And basically only about white people. But it is, it's like the evolution of thought, essentially. Mm. So what the point the book makes, which is why I would argue it might swing someone who's an unhappy Catholic towards atheism, is saying that it's nothing to do with this divine, like, gifting of knowledge. But uh, it was also around this time that he uh, renounced his Catholicism and took on the heavy mantle of atheism that Chuck started to drink quite heavily because sometimes it helps. Mm. It doesn't, I'm kidding. (laughs) Drink responsibly. Because of his drinking, he also lost good jobs and had a couple of failed marriages. All around bad bad news, bad news trifecta there. Sad times. Are you saving bad news bears as a red-handed only concept? Well, if we just start saying bad news bears here, people (laughs) might be confused about what we're talking about. So in the 1950s, at around the age of 40, Chuck moved to Santa Monica in California. He was still struggling with alcohol and was also in the midst of breaking up with his second wife. Within a few years of arriving in Santa Monica, he joined Alcoholics Anonymous, which did you know it was founded in 1935? I did not know that. I was sure it was going to be like a post-50s, everybody's drunk kind of situation. (laughs) Uh, Well, no, it turns out everyone was drunk in the 30s too. Got it. I guess after the swing in 20s. Well, yes, and also the temperance movement was Ah. 1920s, 1930s. Alcoholics Anonymous is very traditional in its approach, and it is also very God driven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, like a lot of people who aren't necessarily religious find it quite difficult to work with because it's this like let go and let God attitude. Mm. Um, Jesus, take the wheel, exactly. but also me take the wheel because I'm going to stop drinking. But yeah. then mm-hmm. God help. Definitely don't take the wheel if you've had a drink. Definitely don't do that. So, interesting for Chuck to go to Alcoholics Anonymous given that he was now a militant atheist. Very interesting, actually. But then I guess, you know, that I'm guessing at that time, maybe there's not a whole lot of choice. And AA, best branding. Yep, yep, very true. Um, in Britain, the AA are who come and help you if your car breaks down. They are. In America, they're called AAA, which is confusing. Oh, that is, what does the AA stand for here? A- Alcoholics Anonymous. No, 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 the, the car people. Auto. Auto ambulance, I don't know. <laughs> Auto ambulance. <laughs> I don't know what it stands for. So back to the this AA, the American AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. According to LA Magazine, at his very first AA meeting, Chuck walked to the front of the meeting and shared with the group. Oh, would you like to know what AAA stands for? The American Automobile Association. You know what? I think it's just Automobile Association here without the American bit. That would make the most sense. Well, I am going to start a petition to change it to Auto Ambulance because that's what it is. I agree. I'll sign it. <laughs> You can't drive. <laughs> I, as a road user, <laughs> demand. Demand. But I'm in cars and inconvenience when cars haven't been picked off the road yet. Well. Well. <laughs> quite. <laughs> that counts. So at his first AA meeting, Chuck walked to the front of the meeting and uh, shared with the group, as is tradition. And he said about AA, quote, I went from one meeting to another every night. That's all I did. I was the first one to speak and I'd speak all night unless they stopped me. Ding, 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 <laughs> Which isn't, it's not great form. I um, mean, if you need to offload, you need to offload. But slightly seeing a little bit of the, maybe the cult leaders. Yes, yeah. Maybe. A touch. A touch of the cult leaders. And I don't know, I think, obviously, I don't have any experience of Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you want to offload, mm. go to therapy. It's a group session. Mm-hmm. Isn't the whole point 
like sharing your experience with others has to be a bit of a two-way street. That's why I'm saying a bit cult leadery. So in 1957, Chuck was invited to join a University of California study on LSD as a cure for alcoholism. He called the experience, quote, the most important single experience of my entire life. Everything that has happened to me since, synonym, everything, dates from that point. Steve Jobs said very similar things about LSD. I mean, everybody, everybody, they're all microdosing. Mm-hmm. All the techs, mm-hmm. all the techies. Yep, yep, yep. In yep. Silicon Valley, microdosing. Should we start a microdosing policy at Red Handed? I mean, we could. My friend um, Sam, who lives in the woods, because I said on Red Handed I was that hallucinogenics frighten me because mm. I know what's in my brain and I don't need more of it. I spend most of my time suppressing what's in there. I don't need to open the door. And she was like, honestly, it'll be fine. Come to my house in the woods. We'll microdose the day away. You're going to have fun. So you can come. I'm, I'm game. She's got a great dog called Marvin. He's a husky. Even better. Even better. So after the acid experiment, Chuck became a voracious reader of philosophy and psychology. He was particularly interested in the nonconformity that Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote about in his book Self-Reliance, as well as the utopian notions put forth by Henry David Thoreau and B.F. Skinner. Yeah, there's a lot of theories that MDMA could uh, help treat depression. Oh, yeah, yeah, like a lot of like... um, maybe other hallucinogenic drugs like magic mushrooms as well. I think I think there are there is significant research. I haven't heard about MDMA, but there is significant research that I know about psychedelics treating depression mm-hmm. and possibly even anxiety, which the results seem to show that it does work. I believe some countries have taken that forward now, but it would be interesting. It's going to take a lot of political willpower to bring that forward, whatever the science shows, possibly in some more conservative countries. So at this particular time of his LA LSD experience, Chuck was living on just $33 a week, uh, which he got from unemployment checks. And he began to taper off from AA. He felt that people who were addicted to drugs and not alcohol weren't accepted in AA. So in 1958, he began holding meetings for addicted people at his apartment. He let those who had no place to live stay at his apartment. And just worth noting here that Narcotics Anonymous was established at this point, but Chuck thought it was too disorganized and too not him. Cult wind chimes all over the place because this is what you're seeing. This is the the level of narcissism you're starting to see here. Uh, It might seem small fry right now, but Mm -hmm. pay attention to it because what he's essentially saying is, but it's not run by me, Yeah. but not me. Therefore, it's not done right. Mm -hmm. And I think that somebody else being in charge of those AA meetings, other people being able to speak, other people being able to share their stories, I think he would have probably found it quite tedious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And therefore, he makes up this reason about narcotics, even though NA exists. It's like, no, but it's not good enough. No, exactly. It's, um, It's why I'm a terrible manager, because my management strategy is just do it how I would have done it without asking me. <laughs> and apparently, that's not good enough. <laughs> Chuck started leading sessions with former addicts that used methods of tough love. The sessions involved aggressive crosstalk and coarse language. Sorry, coarse language does make me laugh because it's like where we get one star reviews on Red Handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we well, got an email the other day. Too uh, much coarse language. Remarking on our coarse language and then he threatened to flog us publicly. So um, no problem with uh, the threat of physical violence, uh, but swearing. Oh my God. No, no, clutch your pearls. <laughs> So as more people joined the group meetings at Chuck's apartment, the language grew coarser and the conversation grew more aggressive. It's been reported that Chuck absolutely bloody loved this approach. Surprise, surprise. 
the sessions became known as synonyms. And according to the New York Times, the name synonym was coined when an addict stumbled over the word seminar and symposium, gave up and called them synonym. This made me laugh so hard when we came across it because I used to work in the glamorous world of uh, corporate conferences. And this is exactly the kind of thing my old boss would have come up with. Every other week, we'd have a brainstorming meeting. What's next in the world of conferences? There was a lot of talk of like hacking events, all this kind of business. Absolutely, he is the kind of person that would have come up with, it's kind of like a symposium, kind of like a seminar. We call it a synonym. And that's what we do. Yeah, a synonym. And that would have been our corporate strategy for the next 12 months. And it would have been your team name on The Apprentice. In July 1958, the group opened a storefront club in Santa Monica, and they named it TLC. And they don't want no scrubs. Uh, which, yeah, obviously, TLC, uh, not only a banging band, but uh, stands for Tender Loving Care. And they used... Or the Learning Channel. You know the, the channel, TLC? Yeah. No. Yeah. No? Do we have that here or no, is it America? We, we don't have it here. Well, we oh. kind of have it here, maybe on cable. Maybe like if you pay for stuff. I think you do have it here, but whatever. So it's like in the US, what like 90 Day Fiancé is played on, what Sister Wives is on. And it's, it's the Learning Channel. Well, this is the thing. Okay. It used to be called, when it was first started, the Learning Channel. Uh-huh. And then they were like, hey, we can make more money if we play 90 Day Fiancé and Sister Wives and Pimple Popper back to back to back. Uh-huh. And then they, they changed the name to Tender Loving Care. <laughs> Oh, I'm not mad at it. I'm not no, mad at it. I love TLC. Whenever I used to go to the US, get in immediately. Turn on the Food Network. If Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives isn't on, turn on TLC and watch Sister Wives until I go to sleep. Perfect. Um, I've witnessed it. It is quite a sight to behold. Like a little blanket burrito and then she stays there for many <laughs> days. <laughs> I'm just knocking at the door. <laughs> Come and play with me. No. <laughs> So this uh, storefront club situation, TLC, uh, it was used for meetings and lodging. Within a few weeks, TLC had about 30 members. Synodon focused on being, quote, a tough, disciplined, drug-free environment with a dash of tender loving care. If I ever have kids, that's what I presume our household will be. said our household like you're expecting me to raise these children with you. No, our household with these kids. Our mutual friends, okay. these kids. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> it's not a high enough A. That'll be your parenting style. It will be. Yeah. Hanging them upside down by their toenails. No drugs until it's done. <laughs> According to Gizmodo, Chuck made it quite clear early on that treating people with addiction was merely a byproduct of his larger mission. Oh, dear. Um, he wanted to create an experimental society that would transform the world. And there Uh-oh. we have it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Experimental society. Yeah, not good. Nothing good ever came from that. No, it doesn't. <laughs> because it will just fall back into what it is. Yeah. So the organization would eventually build schools and businesses. He said, quote, This is the kind of revolution that moved the world from Judaism to Catholicism to Protestantism to Synonism. This is a total revolution game. If anyone says that last sentence to you, run. Mm-hmm. Run. Also, I feel like someone should make him aware that there are still very much Jews and Catholics and Protestants. They haven't gone anywhere. The Vatican is like the richest country in the world. Bar this America, maybe. 
it's not the soundest logic that we've come across on this show. Coming up, Synanon goes mainstream with its revolutionary approach to treating addiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Okay, so let's get into the early days of Synanon and how the arrest of Chuck Dietrich made major headlines. To get into Synanon's program, a client had to go through an interview process and they would have to give up drugs cold turkey, as well as stop all contact with friends and family for 90 days. Like to note though, that is very similar to today's intensive rehab. Oh, totally. They're just like stick a horse on the program on the like pamphlet and they're like it's going to be great here and then as soon as you get there it's chained to a bed I mean let's not say bed that pans, if you need to go sheets. to rehab go to rehab no yeah definitely go to go rehab go to rehab but um, it, the 90 days drying out period zero contact is mm-hmm. pretty pretty usual standard standard business mm-hmm. and the therapy at Synanon included a more than one year residential program. That's quite the commitment. Mm -hmm. And during that time, a client supposedly progressed from detoxification through menial work. Ding, 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 (laughs) ding, ding. And they would eventually move on to a more responsible job in the community. Your cult one time has taken on a bit of a Bollywood vibe. I know. I've forgotten what it was. It was like... <laughs> no, I'm enjoying it. I, okay. I've, I've forgotten what the That's cult fine. one time sounded like. They'll only edit this out and put it in a sound anyway. <laughs> so eventually, after they worked their way up to a more responsible job in the community, they would finally move on to an outside residence and outside work. Do you know what? I've not been to rehab. Mm-hmm. And I've not looked into the treatment of yeah. drug addiction before. But that sounds so far like maybe quite a good method. I mean, yeah, not mad at it. I think it's Progress, gradual. Gradual. Gives you something to do, keeps you busy. Keeps you exact goals. Precisely. And you can't just chuck institutionalized people into the world with no um, help. Exactly. Ease them into it. And If you didn't do the outside work and outside living, then you could also progress to a staff position within Synanon itself. And these techniques, like we said, were there to help people reintegrate into society. And so far, I agree, don't hate that. Yep, so far I'm on board. So according to the New York Times, Synanon, quote, promised members a utopian community and employed communal living techniques, de-emphasizing materialism and playing on its members' guilts. They use stern authoritarian leadership, hard labor, long meetings, and frequently frank and bitter criticism and ridicule of members to keep adherents loyal. People do that. Yes. People go on silent yoga retreats. They do. They go on those like sensory deprivation situations. People mm-hmm. pay money for this shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think anyone, once again, if they promise you utopia. Yeah. 
No, if they're promising you utopia, it's not. Uh, similarly to if someone tells you they're a spy, they aren't. I, all, all of it. Rules to live by. Rules to live by. Get it embroidered. Embroider it immediately onto a cushion and then keep the cushion under your head. And scream time. into it occasionally. And when you scream into it, just keep your eyes open so you can still see the rules. <laughs> But uh, Chuck's own uh, embroidered cushions had different rules on them. He only had a few rules, and they were no drugs and no violence. But as we briefly touched upon earlier, he invented a detoxification therapy known as the game. Nope. Nope. I hate it. Don't like it. And the game was a lengthy group encounter that included caustic, profane, and aggressive verbal tactics. So no physical violence, but just psychological terrorism. Kind of like that Michael Douglas movie, The Game. Haven't seen it. It's a really old and timey film. Okay. And, oh, now I've painted myself into a corner. <laughs> it's Michael Douglas looking young, and he basically is like a bored rich man. Okay. And then he pays this company. I might be wrong, but this is basically what I remember. He pays this company, and they're like, we're going to give you the most thrilling experience, but you won't know when it's going to come, when it's going to happen, what it's uh -huh. going to look like. But it would be something like they'll come and kidnap you and then do a lot of like crazy shit and you've got to get out or whatever. Right. So like kind of like one of those haunted houses now mm -hmm. that you can't get out of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But like that. Anyway, whatever. Watch the game. It's fine. <laughs> if you're looking for a movie from like 50 years ago. <laughs> uh, if you're less interested in a film that Cerise can barely remember <laughs> that was made 50 years ago. Um... Maybe we should start another podcast where I review films with only like 10% interest in what I'm talking about. I mean, <laughs> Saru does this all the time. She's like, why don't we start a podcast about this? I'm like, what, on top of the 50 million we already do? You've got to keep the ideas coming. <laughs> so Chuck called this game Tough Love. And this is the revolutionary therapy that Synanon became known for, and it was called Attack Therapy. Oh. And Synanon actually pioneered the idea of um, the ex-addict as drug counsellor and the idea of tough love. So there you go. Well, there you go. And all I keep thinking about is that bit in Breaking Bad where Jesse goes to rehab and his, like, counsellor is saying that you have to forgive yourself because beating yourself up isn't going to do anything. And he's like, you ran your daughter over with your car, you piece of shit. Nothing changes that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Moving on, according to Gizmodo, lying was just one of the many strategies in the game, and a session could last anywhere from 1 to 48 hours. We cover a lot of false confessions on Red Handed, most recently um, the Guildford 4 and the Maguire 7. I think a lot of people have this concept that falsely confessing or giving into something when you're under a lot of pressure makes you quite a mentally weak person. It's the opposite is true. Like, in the right circumstances, anyone would give themselves up, especially in this sort of situation. You're, these, these are incredibly vulnerable people and they're just being subjected to hours of mental torture. What's the saying? Going crazy in a crazy situation doesn't make you crazy. Is that a saying? It is now. There you go. Put it on a pillow. A former member said, quote, it was primarily for indicting another person, accusing them of some form of transgression. They smelled bad. They were too fat. They didn't work hard. It was a little scary because there was a lot of yelling. It was difficult, painful, but it was part of the environment. It was what we did, so I did it. Those struggling with addiction were called patients and children. Uh-oh. Mm, don't like that. 
they could not leave the premises unless escorted by older members. And again, according to Gizmodo, in the 1960s, the Sinanon House became a hangout for some Hollywood types, including sci-fi author Ray Bradbury, Leonard Nimoy, who is of course Spock, Jane Fonda, and Charlton Heston. And according to LA Magazine, every Saturday night, Sinanon threw a huge party. Oh. Oh, so maybe maybe there, people were there to get fucked up. And this party was open to the public. It had a jazz band. And at this party, members would play the game in public. They would sit around in a circle and call people out on their secrets, their dishonesties, and their hypocrisies. Oh, my God. Have Worst you... nightmare. Yeah. Have you ever played Paranoia? No. Oh my god, it's such a horrible game. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know. I've got spicy armpits. I don't know if I want to. Okay, tell me. We used to play it at my old company because everyone was a bit of a weirdo and a sadist. Your old company sounds like corporate hell. It honestly wasn't. We just thought it was very funny, and we had never played it at work. We'd play it like at the pub or for some reason at Christmas parties. So paranoia is a game where you pick a thing like that you want to say so it'd be like who's the who's the least funny person or something uh-huh and you whisper it to the person sat next to you in the circle and they have to point to a person so nobody else in the circle hears what you've said okay so you are suddenly Hannah Maguire just being pointed at and you don't know what the person said <gasps> and you don't know so you don't know what that person is pointing to you saying about you and you have to say it's something I can't remember it because we were very drunk but it was always like if you want to find out what it is, then you have to down your drink. I hate that. I know. I hate that so much. We used to play that. I don't know what's wrong with us. Do you need help? You need you need to go to Synanon and dry out for 90 days. I know no one wants to play that game, but on the surface level, it's quite a good game. Oh, it's yeah, it's a fine game. Um, I just I you know. <laughs> All I think about all the time is what people are whispering about me behind my back. Yeah. So I I've don't got loads be more in... games like that. If anybody wants them, hit me up. Just follow me. Corporate mind terrorism. Follow me on Instagram at Saruti Leia. I will tell you all my horrible games. But there you go. That's paranoia. You're welcome. Go run a Christmas party or two. In 1958, Chuck and three others were arrested for treating addiction without a license and, quote, operating a hospital in a residential zone. Sounds pretty serious, serious business. According to reports, Chuck said about his arrest that he, quote, started saving lives on the wrong side of town. Kill me. He spent 25 days in jail, and this is when the media caught wind of him and his revolutionary drug rehabilitation program. The LA Times ran a feature on the group. Another LA newspaper published a four-part series on them, and they got a 14-page spread in Life magazine. Wow. They're getting the they're getting the marketing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's good. I don't I don't think they're saying great things, maybe. I don't know. Let's go on. I don't Let's know. find out. Let's find out. So, this 14-page spread in Life magazine wrote that Synanon was, quote, a tunnel back into the human race. What is what? What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And they wrote that for 14 pages. <laughs> Just that over and over again. <laughs> Synanon also got a write-up in Time magazine. There you go. In which Chuck said that 80% of those treated by Synanon stayed clean. Um, side note, that is definitely not accurate. And by not accurate, I mean a lie. 
Both addicts and non-addicts were welcome to join Synanon, and according to the organization's figures, which probably were a bit inflated, between 6,000 and 10,000 people lived in the Synanon facility between 1958 and 1968. By the end of the 1960s, Synanon was a widely respected drug rehab, with intake centres and commune-style rehabs all over the country. Ten years after its founding in 1968, Synanon boasted $2.5 million a year in donations. Their real estate holdings were valued at $7 million. They owned property in New York City, San Diego, Puerto Rico, San Francisco, Detroit, and Santa Monica. And as we sort of alluded to earlier in this episode, Synanon subsisted by turning members into unpaid workers who hustled donations and ran Synanon businesses, such as gas stations and auto repair shops. And they adopted the slogan, the people business. Which, on the face of it, sounds okay. Mm -hmm. But for a start, they're owning up to being a profit-driven business and that they're farming people for their own gain, which both problematic concepts. I mean, the thing is, it's like, yeah, profit I can get on board with because I'm like, are you reinvesting the profits into the business? If you're not making any profit, then nothing gets invested and then it's just going to like decay, which I understand. What they're doing here is slavery because they're basically like, you're going to go through this multi-step program where you'll start off with menial work, then you'll get this job, then you'll get this job, then you'll get... But all the jobs are in our, owned by us and we're not going to pay you for it because it's part of the program. Uh-huh. Free labor. Yeah. Bing, bang, bing, bang, money. Bing, bang, dollar. <laughs> bing, bang, billion. Bing, bang, billion. There you go. <laughs> Synanon also had a valuable advertising business that sold office supplies and sold pens with their logo on it. Why not? you got to diversify those portfolios. And their motto was, quote, buy from Synanon and save a life. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Don't like that nope. at all. Hate that. So as the money poured in, Chuck transitioned the group from a rehab into that dangerous phrase we mentioned earlier, an experimental society. I think this is the classic case of quit while you're ahead. Yes, I would agree. Because you've got, you know... Got a great bad thing going here. A great bad thing going. As much as I um, can't endorse the farming of people for your own profit... We don't endorse that. No. If he had just kept it going there, he would have made millions would have lived a very nice life. But he can't do that because cult leaders never can. It always has to be the next thing. Up next, Synanon rebrands itself as a psychotherapy program, adopts a uniform, and threatens a lawyer with a rattlesnake. Okay, so let's get into how Synanon made its way to cult status. In 1969, Chuck Diedrich said that he was, quote, getting out of the dope fiend business, which is not a particularly sensitive thing to say when you have been treating drug addicts for a decade. Uh, But he said it anyway, and he created something called a punk squad. That's so 60s. Yes, it was is a sort of boot camp. It was devoted to disciplining juvenile delinquents, in air quotes, um, who were sent to Synanon by their parents and the court. So he's infiltrating the justice system also. 
According to the New York Times, with its income, Synanon built huge communal-style villages and other facilities in seven California counties and established branches in Germany, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Malaysia and the Philippines, okay, Germany take no shit. I don't know how he got, got away with that. Maybe that's why, though, because his whole motto is take no shit. That's true, that's true. Chuck said that from now on, addiction could be treated only by keeping clients within the organization. <laughs> Siri's just making noises now. She's not even trying. I can't remember what the original cult wind chime sounded like. <laughs> but she like. has been singing Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat all day, I much have. to the irritants of the gentleman in the office next to us. I mean, you keep just looking at us. Look, look away. We're doing the harmonies. Mate. It's fine. Devout members of Synanon shaved their heads and wore overalls. And here's a little fun fact. In 1969, members of Synanon were extras in the George Lucas dystopian sci-fi movie THX 1138. Haven't heard of it? It's probably because it's dog shit. Lucas needed people with shaved heads and regular actors weren't willing to shave their hair off. And some members also made an appearance in the 1974 Robert Altman movie California Split. Well... I mean, a lot of actors won't shave their heads, quite rightly. Mm. So Chuck found that raising kids within the organization cost just too much money. And so he told members that they couldn't have any more kids. A few women were even forced to get abortions. And male members over 18 had to get vasectomies. Chuck also encouraged his members to swap partners. Why not? Why not? No one's getting pregnant now. No, so why they not? They certainly are with all those tubes getting tied all over the place. Absolutely. And uh, in another move that is uh, would be deeply unpopular on my part, he banned sugar. And in 1970, Chuck had a three-pack-a-day smoking habit. Synanon was spending 250 grand a year on cigarettes. And when he decided to quit, he forced everyone else to quit too. Classic cult. Classic cult leader behavior. Mm-hmm. In 1974, the organization was granted religious status by the federal government, giving Synanon a huge tax exemption and eliminating the need for a license to help people struggling with addiction. And it now became known as the Church of Synanon. Oh, goody. We're there, we're there, we're there. We're there at that evolutionary turning point. It goes from book club Uh to commune to cult to religion. Yeah. To revolution. Mm -hmm. That's the pathway. Yes, the well-established bridge. Um, Do you know why it becomes a religion? Uh, Because people are simple. Because religions don't pay tax. There's that. Tax exemption. That is true. That is true. That's the correct answer. (laughs) So by the late 70s, Synanon had many defectors. Gizmodo wrote in 1978, a former member tried to rescue his daughter from the group, but he nearly paid for it with his life. Apparently, he was beaten so badly that he ended up in a coma for a week. Wow. Yep. So the violence is there. The violence is all over the place. It's about to get weirder. Um, When Chuck's third wife, Betty, died, he sent out a call for a new wife. (laughs) I mean, Which is it's it, not 100 is miles it away. Sounding quite familiar yes. to something that you decided you were going to do. It's not 100 miles away. From Let me do the quote first because yes, um, it will make it funnier. So he said, I sent up a flare, like any monarch of old times would have done. I let the word out. I was available. <laughs> now, Miss Barlow, would you like to indulge the listeners on what we have termed 
the quest for normal man. Yes, I will. I will happily do so. So, as a long-term online dater, unsuccessful online, long-term... Some brief successes. Yes, but... It, they turned out to be mental. Uh, this is the problem. So, what's the quote that I was trying to remember, the motivational quote? If you've only ever done... If you want something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. Precisely. And all I've ever done is do online dating, and I've never got what I wanted. So, new plan. Red-handed listeners are now on the lookout for a man, for me, normal man. Hence, hunt for normal man. Quest for normal man. Makes it sound more futuristic. Mm -hmm. Let's go with that. Um, so now, I have put my put my heart you in put the, your flare up you put my won't. flare up <laughs> in the hands of all of our many listeners like any monarch of old times why would have done. Not? yes please find me some suitors some some appropriate suitors must be in his mid 30s and live in london yeah we want we're going for like a london 6 or 7 yes and have a job yeah that's a must and, uh, I mean, don't be afraid to come with the eights and the nines. That's also fine. Yeah, FYI. yeah, yeah. But, you know, let's be realistic. Hey! <laughs> I'm joking! You can go look at my Instagram to use as pictures if you're looking for a normal man. Chuck was not looking for normal woman, um, but he did find uh, a wife, 30 years his junior. But shortly after they were married, he made a decree that their marriage should no longer be permanent, preferring instead that people have temporary relationships of about three years. Makes sense. It does. But then I'd be like, I've just put in three years worth of work to this. Yeah. yeah you yeah. have to start again. That's long. It's long, but it's also the idea of someone who thinks he can have anyone in the world. This is also true. So remember how Chuck had preached non-violence as a tenant of Synanon early on? Well, in later years, he created a private militia of members that he called the Imperial Marines. He's got a lot of like... Delusions of Grandeur doesn't really cover it, but like he sees himself as very royal. He's using a lot of like colonial terms, a lot of monarchy references, imperialism. He's really hammering home the like olden time royal family situation. Very much so. And uh, the Imperial Marines were there to keep order across Synanon's facilities. Chuck told members to protect themselves by any means necessary specifically against lawyers looking to expose the group. By the late 70s, Synanon had an arsenal of weapons worth about $300,000. A group newsletter said, quote, We're concerned about the rising crime rate. If trouble should occur, we're prepared to handle it. In 1975, three members of the group admitted to assaulting a rancher. Chuck hailed them as heroes. Members also beat up two couples who parked cars at the Synanon apartment building. So the California Attorney General's office eventually linked 18 violent attacks to Synanon. According to LA Magazine, by the end of 1976, Synanon had assets worth 22 million, with 8 million in annual revenue income coming largely from its speciality advertising division, as well as a mortgage business one member had donated and cash contributions. By 1977, Dietrich was drawing an annual salary of $100,000, which in today's bullshit post-recession money is $400,000. Lawyer Paul Morantz represented former Synanon members and relatives of members who maintained that they were held in the organization against their will and subjected to abuse. In 1978, Morantz was bitten by a rattlesnake that members of Synanon 
had put in his mailbox. Biblical. Very biblical. And, you know, really thinking outside of the box, most people would have done a flaming bag of poo. Very biblical, very... Um, is it you who's afraid of the toilet snake? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to be fair, Saru did grow up in India where perhaps a toilet snake is, is more reasonable. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the rattlesnake through the letterbox is uh, it's not it's not good news for anybody. No, it's not. So while this rattlesnake attack is going on, Chuck had been broadcasting teachings and sermons through a low-powered FM radio station. Authorities got access to the tapes, which they seized as evidence. On one tape in particular, he ranted against lawyers. Chuck was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Ironically, when authorities found him, he gave all the appearances of a man who was very, very drunk. And he had to be carried out on a stretcher. Due to his declining health, Chuck pleaded no contest and was offered a deal. Five years of probation, a $5,000 fine, and he was banned from associating with Synanon ever again. In 1982, the Internal Revenue Service revoked Synanon's tax-exempt status, and they were forced to pay $17 million in back taxes, which of course bankrupted the organization. In 1984, a ruling against Synanon found that they had a policy of terror and violence, and a practice of diverting corporate resources for the enrichment of individuals. In 1991, Synanon ceased operations, Chuck died in 1997, just a few weeks shy of his 84th birthday. I don't really know what to take away from this one. Quit while you're ahead, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, he had a good bad model running, like you said. He was exploiting these people, but possibly accidentally helping them. And I'm not saying it's okay what he was Mm. doing, but I'm saying, you know, it might have been working, which is why he then moved it from, oh shit, we need to stop reintegrating these people into society and keep them in the cult. Yeah. And he was making a shit ton of money because he was just getting a bunch of free labor for his legit businesses. Mm-hmm. Quit while you're ahead if yeah. you are a cult leader. Keep it financial, less ideological. This is the thing. That's where they always go wrong. Mm-hmm. But then I guess that's the difference between a cult and a business. <laughs> well, you know, equal Just keep equals. it business. Just, just keep, keep it, it business. straight business. <laughs> so, Speaking of straight business, mm. We've got to go and do some because we're out of time. It's all over. We are out of time. That is it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I am Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we just want to give a shout out this week to the articles that we referenced in this particular episode. We use reporting from Los Angeles Magazine, Gizmodo and Oxygen. And we also referenced the article, The Social Development of the Synanon Cult, The Managerial Strategy of Organizational Transformation by Richard Offshe. And remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode of Sinister Societies every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like the show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, then check out our award-winning weekly true crime podcast, Red Handed, that is on Spotify, and it's also everywhere else that you find your podcasts. Over on that show, Hannah and I talk about the most fascinating true crime cases from all over the world, from the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of the Saudi royal family to the story of 
ever-popular JonBenet Ramsey, and much, much more. We've been going for over four years, so if you're keen for more content from us, you've got over 200 episodes to binge over on Red Handed. So we'll see you here next time, and we'll see you there whenever. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Podcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo and Gemma Waters. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood. And fact-checking by Cara McAleen. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. <laughs>